Pro Se is sponsored by Lexis Plus. Experience a new era in legal research with the all-new Lexis Plus, complete with superior research, data-driven insights, and practical guidance, working all together to deliver results faster than ever before. Visit LexisNexis.com slash Lexis Plus to try it free today. That's LexisNexis.com slash L-E-X-I-S-P-L-U-S to try it free today. Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello, and welcome back. Thank you. And Alex Lawson. Hi, guys. Um, Does anybody have any Mike Pence fly jokes they want to get off? Because we're like 17 (laughs) hours out from that, and I think we're running up against the clock. That's right. The end of it is basically right now. Um, Yeah, I just, my big takeaway, not from the the fly that happened at the debate, but... Well, no, that's, that. I'm sorry. That's all I want to talk about. If you have something else to say... I'm I'm gone (laughs) for one week, and it felt like... Every big news thing that could possibly happen all oh, yeah. came crashing oh. down. I thought you were going to really say you were gone week. for one week and Alex and I made an entire segment out of Yelp reviews. You did, but I give that five stars. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> I was going to say, I thought we would be in trouble. We were, in fact, Not, praised for it. No, which you were means we will learn that. all the wrong um, lessons and probably do something well, worse next time. Now that... <laughs> Now that Amber's back, we uh, we have a good show with our with our whole crew here. Um, a lot of stuff happened today that we're not even going to get to because it's just crazy packed day. There were a bunch of arrests in a kidnapping plot uh, against uh, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Um, yeah, there was a ruling on by the seventh, seventh Circuit on on uh, mail in deadlines in Wisconsin. Uh, big day. Yeah, so much going on. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna get to some some top news of our own here in just a second, but just want to let everybody know about what's coming up in the show. Alex and I had a nice talk with our congressional reporter at Law 360 who gave us what is essentially a cheat sheet for Amy Coney Barrett's hearings, uh, confirmation hearings that start on Monday. So if you want sort of the lowdown on what to watch for there, that'll be the segment for you. But before we get to that, we're going to we're going to start in the Supreme Court in a different context. Yes, um, we're all Supreme Court. We got we we have we like like you said we got we're talking to Andrew about the Coney Barrett nomination, and we got a couple of high court stories for you. They're back in action. They the new term started on Monday, and we've had we've had no majority opinions and no dissents issued yet in this term. But we do have uh, our first pretty substantial piece of writing to talk about, and it is just a it is a statement that Justice Clarence Thomas wrote on Monday. Basically taking square aim at the court's landmark 2015 decision that legalized gay marriage across the nation. Thomas said that the ruling has had, quote, ruinous consequences for religious freedom in the United States mm-hmm. and basically made no secret about uh, his his desire to have it revisited by by the justices. Now, if, if you it's. I was going to say this seems, well, isn't, you know, isn't the law settled here? But I, I think it was last year I wrote a story about. Thomas wrote a dissent where he was calling for the New York Times versus Sullivan ruling, sort of a the landmark First Amendment ruling of the 20th century to be overturned. So yeah. th- this is not outside the the realm of possibility for him. But but you know 
why is he, you know, why is he bringing this up now? Like, what, how does how did this come up in this case? Yeah. Well, the the the, the legal machinations here are, are fairly simple. Um, you might remember a woman named Kim Davis, and she is a Kentucky County clerk who bubbled up in the news shortly after the gay marriage ruling came down. That that ruling is uh, Obergefell v. Hodges, and Kim Davis came to prominence because she. Uh, part of her job at the county clerk's office is li- she's literally the person who issues marriage licenses, and she refused to do so for same-sex couples, citing her deeply held Christian beliefs. And she did this in open defiance of the Supreme Court ruling in Obergefell. So there was litigation over that. She lost. She appealed to the Supreme Court, asking them to revisit Obergefell. That request was denied. But along with that denial, on Monday came this. Uh, like four-page statement from Thomas saying uh, basically that Obergefell was wrongly decided and that because the justices sort of overread um, what is in the Constitution, it is up to them alone to change it. So her, 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 her cert was denied, but Thomas sort of raised the flag as he, as he sometimes does and as, and as other justices sometimes do as well to just say, hey, I think we need to take another look at this. Well, Thomas never uh, liked that opinion. I mean, he dissented when it originally came out, but you teased at the top of the segment that he talked about some ruinous consequences. So what did he get into here with, with this recent writing? Yeah, so Thomas Thomas wrote the wrote this statement, and he was joined by Justice Alito, and their their legal concerns with the ruling remain the same. They, they, they were basically just playing all the hits of the textualist, originalist, wing of the bench saying that the constitution does not explicitly guarantee a right to marriage. It does explicitly guarantee a right to the free exercise of religion and that the Obergefell majority got it backwards. So he kind of re he kind of floated that again, but he perhaps more interestingly, as far as just parsing his own writing on this is that he made like a cultural argument using the intervening five years from the Obergefell decision as basically saying that Christians who believe that, uh, marriage should only be between be between a man and a woman. They've basically been branded as pariahs and they and and bigots and things like that. Here's the sort of uh, here's the basic gist of that of that statement from from Thomas. Quote, Obergefell enables courts and governments to brand religious adherents who believe that marriage is between one man and one woman as bigots, making their religious liberty concerns that much easier to dismiss. In other words, Obergefell was read to suggest that being a public official with traditional Christian values was legally tantamount to individuous discrimination toward homosexuals. So you can he was he was concerned that this would happen when they wrote Obergefell. And now he is saying, this is what's happened. In my mind, this is not right. We should go back and uh, and take another look at this. I mentioned at the uh, outset of this segment that that dissent I, I wrote about with uh, uh, New York Times versus Sullivan. And, you know, two years later, a year later, nothing has come from it. So, I mean, is this a big deal? I mean, is this a thing where where this will really have an impact? Or is this just two justices sort of saying, you know, we don't like this, but uh, yeah. it doesn't really mean much? Yeah, to your point, they, they they do do that a lot, and sometimes nothing comes from it. But it was certainly a big enough deal to draw um, some pretty serious criticism and fire from LGBTQ advocates, including the lead plaintiff in Obergefell, James Obergefell himself. He held a pre- he held a press call like hours after this statement came down. He said that the statement was quote deeply disturbing and upsetting. 
He said also that, quote, Justices Thomas and Alito seem to imply that freedom of religion carries more weight and is more important than all other rights. So um, they were they were obviously upset, as you would expect them to be. The ACLU also came out forcefully against it. Obergefell also noted, as we will discuss at length later in the show, that the court is likely to get a new conservative justice here in the next couple of weeks or months, providing more room to relitigate issues like this, if not a direct revisitation of Obergefell. There are other LGBTQ rights cases that are on the court's docket in this term. There's a case um, about the city of Philadelphia's um, decision to cut ties with a uh, Catholic foster care facility that would not, um, you know, foster children with Mm -hmm. same-sex couples. So it's just about the sort of, the always sort of looming fault lines of LGBTQ-related litigation. And clearly, even sort of a, a stray statement about what people consider to be settled law is still causing um, a lot of upheaval in certain corners of this. Yeah, I mean, I think ahead of this, more people sort of were thinking about the Affordable Care Act and Roe v. Wade as the big sort of fault lines when it comes to a new conservative justice. But now this has thrown LGBTQ rights more into that conversation in a way that I don't think people were really Mm -hmm. talking about. Um, so for our, our second story, I, I, I we're going to stay at the Supreme Court, as we mentioned. We're going to have an all-Supreme Court uh, show this week, but um, we're going to switch switch gears and go into um, my favorite world, the uh, the world of copyright law. Hey, um, he's the back. Court, the court heard arguments this week in a case that's been dubbed the copyright lawsuit of the decade. Um, it's a case that pits uh, Google against Oracle, this huge battle over the legal protections for smartphone software. Um, the case has been litigated for over 10 years at this point. Uh, there are there are huge implications both for copyright law and for the, the tech industry. And uh, there's, there's something like $10 billion uh, potentially at play in terms of damages. So um, it's a big case. And uh, the arguments this week, which had been delayed, they were supposed to be in the spring. Yeah. Um, they finally happened this week and they really didn't disappoint. Yeah. So I was uh, thinking about this case before the show and I'm a real type A, no shock to anybody who listens to pro se. I gathered that for my personality, but I have a folder in my email that is for this case because it's been <laughs> gone on that long. And yeah. Bill, you and I had had a million back and forth conversations about it and emails and whatever. Um, so feels like there's a lot of buildup for people like me and you that watch this area closely. Did the arguments deliver? Would we and get me this too? Week? Because I'm friends with you guys, so it's a huge well, deal. Well, before uh, we get to the arguments, I want to give everyone just sort of the the quick and dirty yeah. rundown of, yeah. of of what this case is about. Um, you know, give my uh, my tight two or whatever on Google <laughs> v Oracle. Um, but uh, so back in the 2000s, when Google created Android, the the mobile uh, platform, uh, it, it tried really hard to make it so that it would work easily with Java, which is a, a very highly, a highly popular software language. It was created by Sun Microsystems back in the 90s, but eventually Oracle, uh, another tech giant, bought up Sun Microsystems. So they they sort of own Java now. Um, to, to make their system work with Java, Google copied these little pieces of code um, that, that Oracle claims as proprietary. Things like um, certain... Co- the names of certain command functions um, 
and and a, and a sort of a classification system for how those functions are mm-hmm. grouped. Google believed, or they say they believed at the time, that they were just copying these because they were basic ideas about the way that software works that weren't protected by copyright law. Um, Oracle <laughs> saw things differently and yeah. Um, yeah. sued them for copyright infringement in 2010. Uh as we've mentioned a few times, we've been arguing about that for a decade ever since. Um, uh, Google says what I just said, that the code isn't copyrighted, or at the very least that they have this legal right, uh, a fair use right, yeah. um, to reuse it uh, in, in their system. Oracle has beaten both of those claims at lower courts, which has put us now at the Supreme Court um, 10 years later. Uh, the case has huge, huge stakes. Um I, I don't think I need to tell you guys or any of the listeners that software is involved in every little piece of technology that you use all day. And Google and its supporters, mostly other tech companies, uh, uh, tech scholars, copyright scholars, say that that Oracle's argument would allow companies to uh, monopolize basic sort of ideas about the way that um, that software works in a way that you know copyright law, which you know, you have a copyright that lasts for a hundred years. The, the copyright was not designed to do. That's more of this idea that that's that should be a patent thing. Um, Oracle and its supporters uh, say that that Google argument, Google's arguments, on the other hand, would um, you know would would be ruinous for for copyright protection. Would deprive mm-hmm. innovators of of rewards for their work. Would would cause similar damage, just in the opposite direction. You've made you've made clear that the 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 implications are huge. You rightly identified that software is big. I've always said that software is everywhere. <laughs> Everyone talks about it all the time. Um, but now we've got we've got justices talking about it and hearing arguments about it, and that's of course why we're talking about it this week. Um, lots of different prongs here, lots of different strands to keep in our head. How did yeah. it go? So I think the best way to break down the arguments is to talk about all the analogies that were trotted out for this extremely complicated technological case Um, yeah the analogies are a a thing that happens during supreme court arguments it's Mm -hmm. no arguably my favorite thing yes and but you know it's it makes sense for tough legal concepts i think everyone remembers um the the late justice antonin scalia talking about um, uh, asking attorneys for the Obama administration if they could force people to buy broccoli um, during arguments over the Affordable Care Act and the individual mandate. But I mean, with, with this case, um, it, you know, it there, there's the added layer of it's not just legally difficult concepts for these eight generalist justices to deal mm-hmm. with. It's also technologically super complicated for eight laypersons, eight people who are not you know, software engineers or whatever. Um, so, you know, the, the analogies came out early and they came out often during during this hearing. It helps to distill the arguments, right? I mean, that, that's 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 why they do it generally. And like you say, it would certainly be, they, they were certainly, the door was open for them to do it here. Exactly. It so um, right, right off the bat, we got um, uh, the chief justice chiming in. I mean, the, you know, these are remote hearings now and they go in order. So it was always going to be the chief justice going yeah. first. But um, right off the bat, John Roberts uh, came in and, sort of push back on Google's attorney. Uh, the, the, Google's attorney was arguing that they have this right to use this this code because it's the only way that they are, you know, it's the only way to write this basic function, this basic idea. So, you know, Oracle should not own 
the exclusive right to it. Other people need to be able to use it. John Roberts pushed back by likening that, like the code at issue here, to a bank safe. You say that was the only way for you to do it, but you know, cracking the safe may be the only way uh, to get the money uh, that you want. Uh, but that doesn't mean you can do it. I mean, if it's the only way, the way for you to get it is to you get a license. It's it's a nuanced policy argument, right? That this is so important that everyone needs to be able to use it. And there was only one way to do it. And so if you're Google's attorney and, and he right away just says like, well, if that's the only way to do it, then you have to pay for it. it you know, it immediately was not a great sign that, that the justices were, were, uh, you know, super receptive to, to the, the arguments that Google was trying to make here. I want to know where I get one of these licenses to open up a bank safe, but I don't. But I don't want to torture the analogy too much. But yes, the uh, uh, probably not not looking too good for them. So the next thing we're going to talk about is uh, Justice Clarence Thomas. It's still weird to hear him talking, yeah. uh, but as we've talked about on the show previously, he is now participating now that there's this orderly oh, schedule so that's still to going the arguments. On. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he made a point to ask if Google's argument. Uh, again, about the idea that that um, you know it was the only way to do this, we had to have their code because it was the only way to do this. Um, he asked if that argument was sort of like saying, "Okay, you're a football team and you've acquired a player. Are you saying that the other team has to give you their playbook?" You know, you could someone could argue though that look, if uh, a team <clears throat> if a team takes your best player as a football team that the only way that those players could actually uh, perform at a high level is if you give that team your playbook. I don't think anybody would say that is uh, is right. I mean, that one arguably makes me more confused because we've now fused high-tech stuff <laughs> with sports. I think uh, uh, the, these analogies all of, I mean, and there were many others uh, throughout the course of the, the hearing, um, but, you know, they were discussed a lot on, on Twitter as these arguments were going down. And I think the football one confused people the most. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, Thomas is from Georgia. I think he's just upset about the Falcons and, I'm, <laughs> and I, and it's, and it's, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. So the final uh, analogy that we're going to talk about this week was from Justice Stephen Breyer, who is never a, uh, uh, there's never a dull moment when he starts talking at the Supreme Court, and um, uh, he he sort of flipped this here. This was a question for Oracle's attorney, and and a tough one, which was he likened the company's control over this code at issue to um, to someone having control over the 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 qwerty layout, the Q W E R T Y mm. layout that's used on pretty much every keyboard around the world. You didn't have to have a QWERTY keyboard on typewriters at the beginning. But my God, if you let somebody have a copyright on that now, they would control all typewriters, which really has nothing to do with uh, copyright. <laughs> He's really fired up. I, I love, also love that he took it old school and used, the, used typewriters, typewriters in a high-tech yeah. like copyright uh, case. That's pretty great. Yeah, I mean that it's you know it was a it was a pretty lo-fi hearing too, right? It was like a conference call over this extremely complicated <laughs> right. uh, sure. high tech issue. So, um, but yeah, I mean, Briar was really getting at the idea that you know maybe maybe you do have some right to this, or you did have some right to this at some point, but now are the policy implications of you having that right too severe? Does that create mm -hmm. a problem, uh, and so on? Um, okay, Bill. So you've been covering this for 
your whole career, it feels like. <laughs> and now you've heard these oral arguments. You know this case inside and out. Do you have a bead on where we're going here? What's, what's your feeling? Well, we always try to avoid prognosticating about what the Supreme Court's going to do based on arguments, but I'm about to do that right now. Yeah, um, great. That's all the normal thing we always do. We say that we can't yeah. say, and then we say the thing. So all the normal, <laughs> the normal caveats <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, apply. But um, yeah. I mean, my sense was that there's probably Oracle will probably be able to get five justices who will side with them on this basic question of whether the code itself is worthy of protection. Mm-hmm. Um, Google got more tough questions. I mean, it wasn't a slam dunk or it wasn't one-sided, but I mean, Google got more and tougher questions, I thought. And the justices seemed to really grab onto this idea that that Google chose to take this code more so than had to, that they, you know, mm. that there were there were other ways to do this um and that they chose it because Java was popular, which is a really hard thing for Google to, you know, Google has all sorts of reasons for why that isn't the case to them, but um, that's a really hard thing for them to rebut when the justices are throwing it in your face. That said, I, I, I think that there's still a decent chance the court sides with Google on the overall outcome of the case. You know, they could rule that Google, even if Oracle has control over this, they could rule that Google nonetheless made fair use of this code and that um, sort of a narrow more factual ruling about like in this instance, Google had the right to use it, but we're not taking away protection from, from Oracle and companies like them, or they could go even more narrow and they could dodge pretty much everything and just rule that, that the lower court sort of screwed up by overturning a jury verdict. That's also before the justices. So they could skip everything important that everybody's been watching this case for. Um, That would sort of needless to say, be a disappointing outcome for all the people who are watching this for these sort of sweeping stakes about the, the future of technology and the future of copyright law. But um, you know, that it wouldn't be the first time that the justice has had, had done something like Mm -hmm. that. Um, So uh, yeah. So, I mean, a ruling is expected by, by the end of the term. I'm sure that when a ruling eventually does come down, we will, uh, we will update you. Once again, Pro Se is sponsored by Lexis Plus. Experience a new era in legal research with the all-new Lexis Plus, complete with superior research, data-driven insights, and practical guidance, working all together to deliver results faster than ever before. Visit LexisNexis.com slash Lexis Plus to try it free today. That's LexisNexis.com slash L-E-X-I-S-P-L-U-S to try it free today. On Monday, confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett begin in the Senate. If she's seated, it would be the fastest high court confirmation in nearly 40 years, and it's coming at a time when a partisan divide and the coronavirus loom over the proceedings. So what can we expect from the hearings? Today, we're joined by Law360 congressional reporter Andrew Craigie to break it all down for us. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Hello. Great to be with you all. Yeah. um, So much action happening on Capitol Hill. Um, 
everybody that follows the legal world and really the world at large knows that Amy Coney Barrett has been nominated and her hearings are coming up really fast. I wanted you to basically come on our show and be our cliff notes for this. What do we need to know? What is she going to be asked right off the bat in these hearings? Definitely. Um, So these hearings are going to be mostly a show because Democrats have already said it's too close to the election to confirm someone. Republicans have already said they love her by and large. So it's not like many senators are making up their minds. What this is about is uh, shoring up support and Democrats maybe trying to score some points um, or or win some commitments. Uh, Democrats are really going to focus on the Affordable Care Act. They have tried to make this whole thing about health care. They've said, gosh, this bill helped give 20 million people health care and this justice is going to take it away, which our health care reporter has a really smart piece on why that's not really so clear. Um, but Democrats are going to focus a lot on health care because Judge Barrett has written that she thought um, the chief justice uh, stretched the law beyond um, beyond its sort of rational interpretation. Yeah, and that kind of makes sense, right, to, to have health care be a big central issue at these hearings because – The Supreme Court does have an ACA case slated for the week after the election to hear oral arguments on it. And Mm -hmm. we're in the middle of a pandemic. Everyone's thinking about health care. Yeah, that's what they're saying is amid a pandemic, the Republicans want to kick people off health care. And Republicans are like, you know, totally disagree. But Democrats are going to be focusing on that. Well, yeah. What are some of the other things? I mean, obviously, there's a there's a there's a reason why we're talking about that. There's a there's a hot there's an imminent case that they will be hearing about maybe soon after she's seated, depending on the timing. But um, what other lines of questioning can we expect them to pursue? I know when we did our our own personal sort of intro show about Amy Coney Barrett, we focused a lot on her religion, and there's been a smattering of reporting bubbling up about that and how it relates to birth control or, or uh, uh, abortion rights and things like that. Uh, I can imagine that would that will probably come up on Monday. Abortion will definitely come up. Um, yeah. She... Her personal views are clear. She was part of a group called University Faculty for Life. Um, She's clearly personally opposed to abortion. Um, And in 2006, she signed on to a local newspaper ad um, that definitely said she um, saw life as sacred from fertilization to natural death, which some people say calls into question whether she would even be okay with in vitro fertilization. Mm -hmm. Um, And... Then the other side of the ad said Roe v. Wade is barbaric and should be overturned. Yeah. Um, and it's, Democrats will talk about that ad. She might say, I didn't sign on to that portion, just that life is sacred. Um, and then they'll look at uh, her other writings on the issue. Um, so, and and Repub- uh, sorry, Democrats are going to be really stepping back and trying to avoid bringing her religion explicitly into this because uh, they got burned real bad in 2017 with her mm-hmm. Seventh Circuit confirmation hearings. Dianne Feinstein famously, with the weirdest word choice I can imagine, said, the dogma lives loudly within you. Yes, yes. Which it is was really like an instant meme. Yeah. yeah. Um, so are, is her response expected to be that she will keep her religion and personal views on abortion out of her her decision-making in the high court? Or are we unclear on what she's going to say when she's pushed on this? It's usually a safe bet to guess that a nominee is going to say, my personal views will have no effect and I cannot comment on something that might come before the court. Yeah. So you expect to hear that phrase you know, five times every two minutes. Well, I wanted, to, uh, I wanted to ask you, you referenced this for a second already, but I mean... And, and I don't know if you have a good answer to this, but I want to ask anyway, just because it's it's curious to me about the sort of the, the questions about the, quote, legitimacy of the appointment. You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg just passed away and it's being, you know, 
some would say jammed through. It's definitely on an accelerated track. Do you think that they'll ask her about that? Or is that just something that you think Democrats will kind of make, you know, basically make de facto stump speeches from the from their chairs? That's a good question. Um, they might bring up her own comments from 2016 when when she was doing a panel as a law professor and mm-hmm. and talked about, you know, precedent of Supreme Court nominees and election years. Um, and she might, you know, back up the Republican line that uh, the precedent only applies um, when Senate and the White House are controlled by a different party. Sure. Or she might yeah. just say, you know, that's for you all as a political branch. Yeah. Um, right. I'm just here as a nominee. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's it's just an interesting thing that's obviously in the ether. Um, it'll certainly come up in some regard, but um, we do have. Uh, there were some interesting sort of disclosures, um, just sort of normal uh, sort of by the book disclosures. She she had to submit a questionnaire about um, uh, you know all of her relevant experience and the significant cases she's handled as a judge. This is a fairly perfunctory document, but it was the first sort of formal disclosure she had to make to the committee. Um, was there anything significant, uh, any significant takeaways uh, from that as far as you're concerned? Well, it is the one time before the hearings that you get to hear from a nominee in their own words. And so it's yeah. kind of interesting to hear her describe her own legal career. Um, she talked about clerking first for D.C. Circuit Judge Silberman, who is known for uh, not being the warmest and fuzziest. And she says that, I thought I was tough. I got a lot tougher. Yeah. That's how she described <laughs> clerking with him. Uh, and then she talked about clerking with Justice Scalia, who's definitely her, her role model. Um, and probably the most interesting thing is the questionnaire asks the nominees to list their 10 most significant cases as a judge, which says a lot about somebody's how they see themselves on the bench and what right. they think their yeah. impact has been. It allows them um, to self-select and create their own curated profile of of juris of like jurisprudence or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's like you know if you're making your uh, Tinder profile and you're listing your interests, like what order do you list them in? What do you put on there? That is that is evocative imagery from you right there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So on the judicial version of a Tinder profile, what did she say was her number one interest? What what was the the top <laughs> case she listed? Uh, the first case she listed was actually about gun rights, um, which is oh. a big enthusiasm for conservatives. Yeah. And it wasn't a majority opinion, which is pretty unusual. It was a dissent. Um, yeah. Yeah. There was this case, Cantor versus Barr, and a, a guy who was convicted of, I think it was related to mail fraud, um, was arguing that nonviolent felony convictions shouldn't keep you from um, gun ownership rights, whereas a lot of states say that felons can't have um, gun ownership. Mm-hmm. And she said she looked back to the original meaning and went back to the founding era and what did people think in the 1700s about who should and should not have gun rights. And she came down and said, no, nonviolent felonies are are not a reasonable uh, grounds for barring someone from gun ownership. I can see why she would pick that, not just because it's a sort of conservative bona fides kind of thing, but also really plays into her being an originalist and a textualist and, and the things that you associate with Scalia. Definitely. This is a uh, Scalia's successor, maybe even more so than the conservative who actually took Justice Scalia's seat, Justice Gorsuch. Yeah. So we've talked about a a bunch of hot button issues already. We've hit abortion, the ACA. We've now talked about gun rights. Uh, Let me bring one more into the fold. Um, A lot of the Democrats in, in the Senate and elsewhere have called for Barrett to recuse herself from litigation that could come up over the current presidential election. What's going on with that? Do you think that'll come up in hearings? And do you know where Barrett herself stands on what she should do about that recusal? 
this is definitely going to be one of the big uh, process questions rather than issue questions. Mm -hmm. Um, Democrats are going to point to Trump's statements um, about he needs a ninth justice seated to because he thinks the election will end up in the courts, which does seem more and more likely as pandemic related voting changes keep happening up until Election Day. Yeah, I mean, it's already it's already trickling into the courts, depending on what state you're talking about. So, yes. Yeah. The Supreme Court's had like little decisions on different election things right. like every week for, mm-hmm. for months. Um, and of course, there could be another Bush v. Gore and Democrats are saying she's being seated just to be you know, the deciding vote just in case Chief Justice Roberts sides with the liberals like he's been known to do on occasion. Um, now, is there a sense? So, I mean, she'll obviously be asked about whether she thinks it's, I don't know, depending on how you phrase the question, whether she ought to recuse herself or uh, whether she will or anything like that. I mean, do you have a sense of like sort of what is the is there like a like a normative take among like judicial ethics experts on like how this ought to play out? It's just it's such kind of like a sui generis uh, situation. It would be nice to think that judicial ethics didn't have any partisanship involved, but unfortunately (laughs) it seems to. Um, So I've talked with some people who are very serious and, and not, you know, reflectively partisan, and yet they still divide along party lines where sure. people who lean left say, you know, gosh, it, it'll look like she has a, a bias here and therefore she should recuse herself. Uh, whereas conservatives say, no, once she's on the court, she will owe nothing to Trump. That's the whole idea of lifetime appointment. There's no reason for her to recuse herself and this is ridiculous. Um, and so the fight will be between senators who will make those points. She... I, I, I would bet good money we'll go with the usual line about um, I cannot comment on the merits or sure. even whether I would participate in a case. I will consult the relevant guidelines, which the Supreme Court doesn't have uh, an ethics code that applies to it. But they do have um, one part of the law that says they should recuse whenever a reasonable person would think they're not going to be impartial. Oh, and of course, I just heard you say the, the words reasonable person. And so that's always the the squishy part, right? <laughs> it's so hard to tell. I mean, even among the ethics experts, all yeah. of which we presume are pretty reasonable, they divide. So hard to, hard to say there. We haven't even talked about the COVID thing yet. Uh, as most people listening probably have heard, the the sort of the official nomination ceremony in the Rose Garden at the White House became has become something of a... I, I don't know if it's clinically a super spreader event, but there's been a lot of COVID cases that arose out of that event, including, of course, the president himself. Uh, probably more pertinent for our discussions, though, there were several GOP senators, including some who sit on the Judiciary Committee, who have contracted the disease. And given that they're trying to move this along quickly, the Senate is now has now stopped work for two weeks, but they're still having this hearing. Can you just explain to us how, like, some of these infections on the GOP side, combined with the overall sort of modalities of Senate work, how this all plays together in terms of how the outbreak can affect this this proceeding going forward. Republican leaders have said uh, this changes nothing. There are two Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee who have tested positive, Tom Tillis from North Carolina and Mike Lee from Utah, um, and they're expected to be um, recovered in time, definitely in time for Quinty votes. It's an open question whether they'll be there in person. Mike Lee's spokesperson told me today that he still hasn't decided. Mm -hmm. And then there are two others who are quarantining who technically won't have done the full two-week quarantine, um, but will have done 10 days of quarantine. And they they say they're going to be there and they're going to be in a big room. They can spread out. Republicans say it's perfectly fine. Democrats, of course, say this is dangerous for senators and staff. And it's another reason to slow down, which, as with many things related to this process, is exactly what you'd expect both sides to say. So with those mechanics in play, I just want to make sure I understand them because I feel like there's always Senate rules I forget and don't remember how they work. They really only need like 
one or two people to actually continue the hearings, right? What really gets um, in the crunch time is when they have to committee vote and then floor vote on the nominee. Yeah, Amber, that's exactly right. Um, So hearing only takes one senator to... Oh, only one. (laughs) So yeah, as long as Lindsey Graham can make it, you know, they're good. Um, What they have quorum requirements for is the committee vote, Mm -hmm. which wouldn't come until around October 22nd. So Republicans have time to get healthy and unquarantined. Um, And then, of course, the floor vote um, has to be all in person, according to Senate rules. And with one and maybe two Senate Republicans saying that they'll vote no because of the proximity to the election, then Republicans have really small margin of error. Okay, Mm -hmm. I want to get into that floor vote um, and the numbers and all of that. But before we do, I just have to ask the question that I guess everybody probably thinks in these times when all of our jobs, no matter what you do for a living, most of us have resorted to some Zoom calls. We're on one right now. Could they do any of these votes remotely? Is there a way for the committee vote or is there any rule change or something they could possibly do for the floor vote to hold it virtually? The Senate, uh, Congress in general, and then the Senate in particular are very much creatures of tradition. Um, (laughs) So that would implicate uh, traditions that they're loath to change. And then also there are some rules that they would have to change and require a nuclear option vote and it'd be really messy. So we're unlikely to see those change. Okay. Yeah, I remember in my uh, in in my days prowl, uh, prowling around Capitol Hill, the, the the old shorthand used to be, well, you know, it's the Senate. If you can get unanimous consent, you do whatever you want. But that seems like a million years ago. They're not getting unanimous consent to do anything out of the ordinary in this regard. Um, but I think this is probably a good time as any to just move to some 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 good old fashioned whip counting if you have it for us. I mean, presuming we get out of committee in an orderly fashion, tell us about. What 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 the vote count is looking like on the full floor and also about the timeline, because I know there are questions looming about whether it's proper to do it before the election or in a lame duck. Uh, Break that all down for us. How's that looking? Well, Alex, let me tackle your last question first. Yeah. Um, So on the propriety thing. So Democrats say you blocked President Obama's um, nomination of Merrick Garland in 2016, saying it was too close to the election. But Judge Justice Scalia died in February. Uh, Republicans quickly counter and say they've been very consistent in saying it's about um, if the majority party in the Senate is the same as the president's party, then they can go full steam ahead. It Mm. basically boils down to if we have the votes to stop something in election year, we can. And that's the precedent that that they've said they set going forward. Um, So that's the propriety issue. And Democrats and and one, maybe two Republicans think that it's improper after 2016. That Why I keep saying one, maybe two. Susan yeah. Collins has said she's going to vote no if there's a pre-election confirmation vote. Um, she's the moderate in Maine who's fighting to keep her seat. Mm-hmm. Lisa Murkowski is a, a pretty independent Republican from Alaska who's not up for re-election this year. And she initially said um, it's too late in the year. But then she seemed to suggest that she might consider the nominee on the nominee's own qualifications. And now her spokeswoman is saying, we're not going to address questions until the senator has met with the judge. But now it seems the judge isn't doing any more in-person meetings. Oh. And so Murkowski is just like, you know, behind a veil of uncertainty. Well, I mean, even if we had those two GOP defectors, in essence, that's still not enough, right? I mean, they need, what, four total? The Democrats would need four total Republicans to um, side with them to stop the nomination. That's exactly right. And, and the most likely third defector was uh, Mitt Romney out of Utah. And he quickly said um, that he was ready to confirm a qualified nominee 
Um, and so as long as Republicans can get all of their members or uh, only two are missing, then confirmation seems likely. Uh, we are going to have so much to watch over the coming weeks because, uh, as we've learned over this past week with so many um, high-ranking officials contracting coronavirus, you never know what's going to happen with this. So really appreciate you giving us all the cheat sheet of what we need to be watching for next week. Definitely. It was great to talk with y'all. And, and, and stay safe up there, will you? Thanks. You guys, too. <laughs> Our show is something offbeat. Uh, what do we have to talk about this week, guys? Well, more it's... Yelp reviews. <laughs> we yeah, heard just you to include me this clear. time. <laughs> this time, it's the Second Circuit's cafeteria in downtown New York. Uh, no, um, so this is still not quite a a huge news story, though more so than than existent Yelp reviews. I just I find it, it's a point of fascination for me about. The quality of writing that, that is coming out of the Court of International Trade. We did a segment on this, or we did an offbeat on this in May, and I focused on the newest judge at that time. It was a man named Tim Reif. People might remember we discussed he in his first couple opinions out of the gate. He he cited The Godfather. He cited the television show Homeland. He cited the the Ryan Reynolds and Sandra Bullock movie, The Proposal. Just, the guy was spraying to all fields. Right. Which I believe brought up um, a classic dividing line among the hosts, which is that I love this kind of thing and Bill hates it. <laughs> well, I, I bring it up because I just wanted to check in. As I said at the time, this is not the kind of court that almost ever does this stuff. Like right. the, it, It's very technical. It's a little rote. Whatever, but I just wanted to check in on a little bit. First of all, of note, we did that segment in May. Uh, Judge Reif has only issued one opinion since that came out. I don't know if he's got a backlog or whatever he's doing over there. He only issued one. That was in July, so that's not new. He was probably was just July. watching a lot of movies. Yeah, right. Well, listen to this, though. Now he's branched out. This was a very boring case about fraudulent documents that were submitted to the government like import These documents, documents, they're fraudulent. I'm they're sorry. fraudulent. They're they're fraudulent documents about Im- about imports of portable coolers, and okay. it's like a 25 page opinion. It's a default judgment. They didn't fight it, and then out of goddamn nowhere, at the end of it, <laughs> he just he just quotes at length Herb Brooks's pregame speech to the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. Okay, I was so on board with this when it was movies. Now we're we've moved on to like <laughs> well, sports speeches. There was a famous movie about this. Yeah, mm, uh, okay. but, he, but importantly, in this opinion, when he cites it, his 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 footnote is just uh, Herb Brooks. Coach Herb Brooks, pregame speech to Team USA Men's Hockey, 1980 Winter Olympic Games, Lake Placid, New York. Does not reference Miracle. Does not reference the film. Mm. Uh, He also got the date wrong, February 20th, 1980. Uh, Miracle on Ice uh, was uh, some other date that I don't actually know. February 22nd uh, is what it was. So anyway, Mm -hmm. that was the last opinion he wrote. Now he's quoting historical events. Then just today, as I was just perusing the docket, Judge Gary Katzman... 
um, handed down an opinion that again, I have never. I, I've read he he went on the court in 2015. He was a, he was the last Obama uh, appointee to the CIT. Brother of a friend of the show. Correct. Um, he. He, I, unless I, I could be mistaken, I've never seen him quote any kind of pop cultural thing in any of his opinions. And then today, right out of the gate, before he even sets the stage for, for, uh, the facts of the case, first page of the case, quote, all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. So opens the classic intense novel, Anna Karenina. Uh, He's getting really literary. That's great. High-minded quotes there. Now, this is definitely me. If any if any trade attorneys are listening, I have no this is not being reported. I am merely surmising. I just I'm I I I would want to know, and maybe I'll I mean I should probably just ask somebody and do my job, uh, whether Rife is like rubbing off on these people and like, well, you know, guys, I think we can color up the writing a little bit. (laughs) On the court, I'm not, not nothing crazy. And then, of course, Captain's like, "I'll I'll quote a a novel from 1877." How's that? I, I love, love the idea. I love the idea of it being inspirational. Like a know. few movie quotes really get the juices flowing. Well, but I was gonna say I love the idea of it being inspirational. But he doesn't. He's like never seen a movie. Um, he's just like his 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 cultural knowledge is limited to uh, Anna Karenina and novels yeah. prior. Look, yeah. we all write what we know. We bring That's to true. the table the things that are in our wheelhouse. So yeah. you know, if you want some quotes from Real Housewives, I've got them for you. Yeah, you guys sure. can bring some bachelor quotes. We're good. Sure. This wasn't. Th- th- this was an interesting case too. It was about a bunch of family-owned businesses that the Commerce Department treated as one entity for a right. duty investigation. But then it actually turns out that like the like the the families have had these like bitter falling outs, and even though they have their own companies, they they, they should not be collapsed into one entity. So over, over portable coolers. Yeah. No. 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 This <laughs> no, is this different. Is this different was one. about uh, this is about steel flanges. The other one was the, the other one was <laughs> oh, wow. Hey, but look, keep up. I really like that the quote is. It's very on point. I mean, it really is about like family strife and how I thought that would, can get complicated. It's and about weird. phalange strife. Yeah, right. <laughs> I thought he would go. I thought he would go Hawthorne. Families are always rising and falling in America. But he went. Oh, he went. Great. He went also good. That's his idea for the next one, Alex. You've just planted a seed there. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. That's all we got. <laughs> uh, that's a great way to end the show today. Thanks for being with me, guys. Thanks a lot, Alex. Thank you. And Bill. See you next week, guys. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Andrew Craigie, and our contributing reporter, Jimmy Hoover. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review anywhere you're listening. It really helps other people find our show. And if you want to know more about all the things we talked about today, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you again next week.